If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah 52, Isaiah chapter 52. Uh, just to clarify, I uh, decided we're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. We'll save verses, I believe it's 13 through 15, uh, as we look at Isaiah 53 next week. So uh, just to clarify that. And before we start, I, I want to clarify something else. Um, at the end of my last sermon, I said the phrase, who cares? And I regretted the way it sounded. So even if you've forgotten the point I'm clarifying, I want to say this. It's not that we don't care at all about the problems others might experience because our life is good and blessed, but we should not use the existence of others' problems as evidence, so to speak, that God is not good because there's plenty of evidence that God is good in our life, in the lives of others. So first, we need to know that he's good. Second, we need to admit that we can't fix every problem in the world around us and then live as ministers of reconciliation for those that we can influence. And third, we need to be content and be grateful with the blessings that God has shown to us. Even if you've forgotten what I'm talking about, I feel much better now. So with that, <laughs> let's look at Isaiah 52, again, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For, sh for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy for eye to eye. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, for he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, would you be our help right now? Would you give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us, your people? We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen. He was a Heisman Trophy candidate and a cover boy for Sports Illustrated, but inside he felt worthless. 
In one night, a few beers and a girlfriend who was nicer than he deserved made it all come out, all of his fear and self-loathing. What if he's not who people think he is? What if he can't win it all, win the trophy? What if he never makes it to the pros? What if he simply ends up like all the other men in his family, a lousy drunk with nothing to show for it all? Even though I took all that from a sports movie, I think a few of you might be able to relate. Even the ones who hate football don't have to raise your hands. Because that guy isn't the only one who's ever felt worthless, is he? Enough bad things happen to you. Enough bad things get said to you. You start to believe that you are bad. And I think that's where Israel was when this was written, beaten down. Forgotten by God, or so they thought, conquered by foreign nations, passed around like a possession, but not a very valuable one. Even if some in Israel were on the right path, obeying, hoping, but growing impatient, weary, losing hope. Because sometimes hope feels like a dangerous thing. That false hope might drive you insane. So why not just give up and stop hoping? And into that darkness comes the word of God, the word of the Lord. And it says this, that we are valuable children of the king, clothed in strength, in dignity, anxiously awaiting redemption, and therefore indifferent to the world's pleasures and temptations. We see that this morning in four points. The first one is this, the clothing of redemption. The clothing of redemption, verses one and two. Israel was deluded, frankly, despairing weren't seeing things straight, but we can understand why. Their previous generation had blown it for them. Bad leaders, bad decisions, moral failures had earned them invasion and exile. Exile is coming, darkness looms, and maybe that's why they told God to wake up in Isaiah 51 verse 9. And God returned the favor, telling them to wake up. 51:17, And then again in chapter 52, look at verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful gar garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. As we said two weeks ago, assuming that God is asleep, not good, but having the boldness to ask him to wake up, to call him to action. That's a good instinct. And if God is offended by all this, he gets over it quickly. He just announced that Zion will receive his wrath no more. Chapter 51, verse 22 and 23. And now he is telling her to dress for success. Zion or Jerusalem, she has no record of strength. They've been invaded and defeated by many, but God is telling her to be what she truly is, because in the arms of her Savior, she is strong and secure. And not only should she put on strength, but also her beautiful garments. Zion didn't feel pretty, beautiful. Sin was running rampant in the streets. Her beauty and righteousness had faded. But God says she will be beautiful once again. Actually, it's more. He is saying she is still beautiful in his eyes. She should dress like it. She should be who she really is. She should act like a ruler seated upon a throne, not a slave with chains around her neck. Verse two, that's what it means to get dressed with strength, to put on 
her beautiful garments. When I first moved to Colorado, another PCA pastor told me that we were the second worst dressed state in the country, number two. And he said, I keep telling people, if we really try, guys, we can make it. We can be number one, the worst dressed state in America. Now, maybe his goals weren't lofty enough, but maybe ours aren't either. Maybe we sometimes are content to say at least life isn't as bad as it could be. And that's true. And we need to be thankful for that. But is that all God wants us to say? Does God want us to walk around like ugly children that he barely tolerates? Or does God want us to walk like we're wearing the clothing of redemption? One commentator says this, God challenges Zion to see herself not as her enemies see her, or even as she sees herself, but as the Lord sees her, beautiful as a bride, regal as a queen. And you know, Zion may not get it yet. They may not understand why God thinks that she is so lovely and so beautiful. They, they know the writings of Isaiah. They, they know it involves a savior, a Messiah, a, a, a servant of some kind. They know that God will do shocking things, that his salvation is drawing near, chapter 51 says. They may not realize it all yet, but Isaiah would spell it out later. You see, these clothes were not their clothes, strictly speaking. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And years later, John would write this, Revelation 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The bride, that's us, by the way, God's beloved, the ones who are beautiful in his sight. The bride was granted this fine linen. In other words, she didn't earn it. Someone else earned it for her and gave it to her. God calls us to see ourselves as he sees us because he promises that the bride will wear white even if she's undeserving. He promises that God's children will always be on the best dressed list. That's what the clothing of redemption teaches us. And we also see, secondly, the cost of redemption. The cost of redemption in verses 3 through 6. Why did God's people feel worthless? <clears throat> Verses three through six explain it well. Look at verse three. For thus says the Lord, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. And the word nothing without money, similar words, it occurs again in verses four and five. It underscores how numerous nations had conquered Israel, passed her around like an electric blanket in July, like a fruitcake that no one wanted. Why did Israel feel worthless? Because numerous people treated her like she was worthless. And what exactly does it mean? that Israel was sold for nothing, verse 3. Well, among the explanations, this was not a valid sale, so she is still the Lord's property. 
and Israel's foreign slave masters have no claim over her, no claim over her God. Sounds right. Also sounds cold, analytical. Israel sounds like nothing more than a piece of property and not a very valuable one and all of that. I think others get closer to the sense of the passage. Yes, she was sold for nothing. And yes, she will be redeemed for nothing, for no money. But that doesn't mean that God's people are a free toaster, some kind of throw in a set of car mats, the 13th donut to make it a baker's dozen, a a lanyap for my Cajun friends. No, these are the same people who are beautiful and strong in the Lord's eyes. When God says he will redeem Israel without price, it means, quote, she is beyond price. No one whom the Lord values so highly can be worthless, no matter what indignities they have suffered. Another author is practically speechless about this section. He asks, if they won't be redeemed with money, with what then? Just as the seller in this case made no gain, so the redeemer will not pay money. But what will he pay? For he must. Once more, we are left in suspense. Remember. God's people didn't have a New Testament. They couldn't, not like you and me, they couldn't skip ahead to see how the story ends. All they knew was that somehow God was going to get them out of this mess. And why? As Alec Moitier says, because the bondage of his people is something he cannot tolerate. How would God do it? How would he redeem his people if he didn't use money? Oh, he would use something like the things at the end of all those MasterCard commercials, something priceless. Years later, the apostle Peter would say it this way. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There was no price that God would not pay to redeem his people. And Isaiah 53 will prove it. He did not spare his own son, as Romans 8 says. So when you feel worthless, you might feel that way now, later. When you feel worthless, take 10 looks at Christ for every look at yourself so that you can remember the cost of redemption, the cost that God paid to redeem you. Next, we also see, thirdly, the crier of redemption, the crier of redemption, verses 7 through 10. What do I mean? I mean, there's a town crier in these verses, a town crier or even a national crier, someone who is yelling, hear ye, hear ye. It's like Paul Paul Revere, only he's announcing good news to all who can hear him. Verse 7, how beautiful. Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of salvation, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Remember, Isaiah still hasn't spelled it out, the big event, which will lead to new clothes and honor to the Lord, reclaiming his valuable bride, his precious bride, this big event that will cause everyone to know God's name, verse 6. The event that proves God is all that he claimed he would be. We don't know what it is yet. If we stand in the shoes of Isaiah's original audience. But we know it's big. Big enough to shout it. Big enough to 
publish it. It's going to be good news, peaceful news, happy news, news of God's salvation so good that even the feet of the messenger will be beautiful. And the news will spread, spread from the messenger, the crier, the one who cries out, verse 7, to the watchman in verse 8. The watchmen who stay alert for battle, who are going to drop their guard and lift their voices because this news is worth singing about. It'll be clear, plain as day. Everyone will know that God has returned to Zion, this section says. Verse 9 says it'll spread even to the waste places of Jerusalem. What are those? Maybe they were cities destroyed by the enemy. Maybe they were the sewers, the gutters, the disgusting places. Whatever they were, even they will cry out in song when the Lord comforts his people and redeems Zion. Moitir says the ruins of Jerusalem, including the suffering, bewildered remnant, burst into song in joy for all the former woes 10,000-fold repaid. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Essentially, this section is saying your fortunes are about to change and everyone will see it. When will that happen? Maybe it was when the exiles would go home, maybe later for Jerusalem. And what about for us? When will our fortunes change? In one sense, it happens every day. We wake up, the sun rises, and God's mercies are made new once again. Once again, we receive mercy instead of what we deserve. His faithfulness gets greater the more we experience it, even if faithfulness looks mundane to the untrained eye. There are mercies made new, and there's also promises of prosperity, fruitfulness, but keep in mind, what, what, what do we mean? What's the Bible's idea of prosperity? We are like trees that grow slowly and surely, Psalm 1 says, persevering, not perishing, bearing fruit in season. That's the kind of prospering he gives. Until one day, when glad tidings come, your God reigns, verse 7 says. You see, if he reigns, if his kingdom comes fully and finally, then nothing can stop him from saving us. Nothing can stop him from clothing us with honor and strength, dignity and worth, joy and singing. That's what the crier of redemption is trying to tell us. He is making all things new right now in and around you. And one day all things will be new. When the herald cries out, your God reigns. Don't you want to hear the crier of redemption? Finally, we also see number four, the cleansing of redemption, the cleansing of redemption in verses 11 and 12. So far, we've received new clothes. We know our cost, our worth. We also know that salvation is worth crying out, worth telling everyone. And if we know God's redemption, then we will long to be clean and set apart. Look at verses 11 and 12. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. 
for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. God wants us to live like we have a better home waiting for us. He wants us to live with joy in anticipation for a second exodus, a better exodus, where we will have all the freedom to worship God without all the pollution of other gods and idols. Now, scholars debate whether Isaiah is talking about Israel departing from Babylon, where they would go into exile. And one scholar says the Exodus themes here are stronger than the Babylon themes. But we can't ignore what John says in the final book of the Bible, either Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Then verse four, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. God's people in every age need to get away from anything that reeks of Babylon. And this is God's gift to us, a place that is clean, literally, morally, and every other way. God was going to give Israel the gift of cleanliness. It's not a small thing when you've lived through a siege, when the city is surrounded by an army in desperate times, call for desperate measures. God was going to give them the gift of cleanliness as well as the gift of a second exodus, a second one, a better one. Oh, they wouldn't have to leave in haste, eating the Passover with belts fastened and sandals on because they feared the Egyptians and they needed to run for their lives. But they would be anxious in a different way, staying alert, staying ready, knowing that their salvation was near, expecting God's redemption at any minute expecting God to march before them like he did in the exodus in the wilderness, knowing that God would be their rear guard to protect them. So how can we do that? How can we live like God wants to cleanse us and to keep us, to guard us? Well, we can start by departing from the uncleanliness around us because we know that God has something better. We can make sure that we don't learn every lesson the hard way. We can trust what the Bible says when it says that sin is sweet, but only for a season. We can avoid that bitter aftertaste. And instead, we can pursue whatsoever things are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent and praiseworthy. If we know the God who made us lovely when others, including ourselves, thought we were ugly then why won't we pursue the things that God thinks are lovely? And how do we live like God is not just our cleanser, but also our keeper? I think we'll live like our bags are packed and we're ready to go. Whenever the call comes again, as they did, as they were awaiting the exodus, like our bags are packed and we're ready to go. Whenever the call comes, this reminds me, one of our children was born earlier than expected. So early that we had 
barely packed a bag for the hospital. And so in the wee hours of the morning, we didn't actually think my wife was in labor. Something was happening. The nurse line said we needed to go to the hospital, but it was early. Six weeks before the due date, hours before sunrise. But I still ran around, threw a few things in a bag. And the last thing I saw as I left the baby's room was the baby's car seat. For some reason, I said, nah, the baby's probably not coming today. So we left without the car seat. And a few hours later, we had a baby before breakfast and around lunchtime. I had to miss one of those precious hours because I hadn't packed. I had to go get the car seat. I hadn't fully anticipated the need for the car seat to hold the bundle of joy that was going to change my life. Now, it was still a good day, a great day, but it could have been even better. I could have enjoyed it even more if I had planned ahead. So my friends, Plan ahead. Expect God to give you good things. He is a God who clothes us with beauty and strength and salvation. He's a God who paid the ultimate cost for our redemption. A God who gives us good news that's worth crying out, that's worth telling everyone about. A God who has cleansed us, who promises to keep us in his care until that day when the best news ever becomes even more real, even more up close and personal. Plan for that day. Anticipate that day so that you can enjoy that day and every day leading up to it because our salvation is closer now than when we first believed. Let us pray. Oh God, you are good and what you do is good. Father, sometimes we miss the goodness. Sometimes it's cloudy. Sometimes we don't see the sun. Sometimes we don't see all your magnificence and grandeur and wonder and kindness to sinners such as us. Life can be cloudy. Life can be ugly. Life is fallen on this earth. But God, help us to see your goodness shining through all of the mess around us and in us. Help us to see your goodness and help us to hold tight to your promises as you hold tight to us, your people. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.